Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The pound's reaction to news on Brexit. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbuck CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston on Bloomberg Radio. It all started out so well, a new year with bright prospects for markets and renewed global growth. But even as we began 2020, there was a virus growing in central China that would soon infect tens of thousands and kill hundreds. And so trade and commerce and travel began to shut down, adding the prospect of reduced economic growth to the tragic human toll. And so we start our program with the economic effects of the coronavirus with our contributor, Zanny minton Beddoes. She's editor of The Economist and Glenn Hubbard of the Columbia Business School. Dr. Hubbard served as the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush. So welcome, both of you. Great to have you here. Thank you. Zanny, I'm going to start with you because last week the cover of The Economist was rather clever. It was a globe with a surgical mask in the form of the Chinese flag on it. Uh, where are we right now in this? What are the economic effects likely to be? Well, we've, we don't really know, but my suspicion is that they are going to be quite a lot bigger even than those numbers that you cited. And, and let me tell you why. And I'm very struck how little reaction there has been, particularly this week, um, where I think they've basically kind of shrugged off any, any concerns about the coronavirus. And the reason I worry a bit is that the prism through which many analysts are looking at this is the prism of the SARS virus, which in 2002, 2003 hit China and, and parts of Asia. And the impact then was a very sharp decline in Chinese GDP, but very quick, and then a very dramatic bounce back the following quarter. So by the, when you looked at it over a year, it was a kind of blip. I think there are several reasons why this time is different. One is people infected are already quite a lot larger. It's traveled further, and we aren't anywhere near the peak yet. We don't know where, how far we are from the peak. But more importantly, China is a very different economy than it was in 2002, 2003. It's much bigger. It, then it was about 4% of global GDP. Now it's about 16%. 
it's much, much more integrated into global supply chains. You know, now there are a huge number of global companies that rely on Chinese supply chains, which is why you're seeing car companies outside of China already having to think about shutting down their, their factories well away from Wuhan. And thirdly, it's the Chinese themselves are much, much more mobile. There's mm. much more movement. I was really struck uh, before they shut all the flights down. I think it's 200,000 people go in and went in and yeah. out of China every day. That's six times more than 2002, 2003. As Zenny says, the markets just keep going up and up. They took a hit for a couple of days, but they're back up now again. Uh, are the markets getting wrong and our economists getting wrong? Are economists underestimating the possible effects? Well, I think what economists have done in the market is focus on the near-term GDP effects that you mentioned, and I have no reason to quarrel those numbers. But I agree with Zanny. First of all, China's starting off in a much weaker economy going into this than was true during SARS. It's, as Zanny pointed out, four times the share of world output that it once was, and the global connections are important. I also think another casualty here is fueling China skepticism mm. around the world. I think the market's maybe shrugging a bit too much here. We, we don't know where it's going, Zanny, but is there a risk, perhaps, to the very globalization that makes China a larger part of the world economy? Yeah, I think there is a risk. And don't forget, this is coming on top of what was already a very um, tendentious relationship between the U.S. and China. You know, we did have that phase one trade deal a few weeks ago, which has made everyone sort of heave a sigh of relief. But really underlying that is a shift in both countries to seeing the other as a strategic competitor, a concern about it, particularly in the technology sphere, that, you know, the, the U.S. desire to not have Huawei and 5G and vice versa. If this goes on for months rather than weeks... I think you have a really profound impact. People will say, can we rely on a Chinese supply chain? What does it do to well, the U.S. economy? Well, I think for the U.S. economy, it will be very modest in terms of a GDP effect in the near term. But again, if global supply chains fracture, that is a big change for business. And don't forget the Chinese economy itself. An uh, internal problem in the Chinese economy or perceived lack of legitimacy has big global implications. So again, shrug is not what I'd be doing. That, that's another question. What, how, how does Xi Jinping handle this and what is the impact on him? And part of the last few years has been you know, the very, very dramatic centralization of power. It went from being a sort of collective authoritarianism to a one-man authoritarianism. He's got a huge amount at stake. And I think the very, very draconian response, which I think increasingly people are going to question you, is the cost of the response of shut, trying to shut down whole parts of the country sustainable and worth it? And are we going to do this again and again and again? In fact, we have these viruses come up more and more often, I guess particularly in part because the human uh, occupation infringes right. on nature. I mean, you know, and for example, in China, people are saying they're living closer to bats now <laughs> as a practical matter. And so they come into contact with one another. So we're going to have it more and more often. zanny has got a great question. Are we going to take these draconian steps every time? I don't think we can. And, and I think politically the regime would be in trouble if it did. So I, I think these longer-term questions are the one to be focused on. But in the meantime, there are these really interesting kind of butterfly wing consequences. You know, coffee prices tumbling because of all the Starbucks is being closed. You know, Chilean exports of wine. <laughs> like wine know, and cheese are piling up everywhere. Piling up. For, for the we're going to see more of those because yeah. I think a lot of people aren't really... You know, I, I certainly am not aware of the very details of these supply chains. So there's going to be really surprising consequences. 90% of the world's plastic flowers made in China. Is that right? I didn't know that. So yeah, so it's another aspect of this uh, globalization as a practical matter. We can't even anticipate. Oh, that's absolutely true. And of course, right now, globalization has skeptics among elected leaders, including 
uh, in the United States. And so these all feed that skepticism. Well, this is a fascinating point. It's not just among leaders the globalization has skeptics. You see it in the United States. You see it in Western Europe. There are a lot of people in the populace who say, I'm not sure I like this globalization so much. That's absolutely true. And I'm interested in this country. What happens? Let's, let's just imagine, I hope it doesn't, but let's imagine this goes on for a few months. And let's say we have a bigger outbreak here in the U.S. too. What is the president going to do in terms of his relationship with the Chinese leader and the reaction to China? It's also reinforcing this sense of division between the U.S. and China. So I'm kind of interested. Well, I think it certainly would feed the president's skepticism. But let's remember that the president's opponents in this race are as at least That's as skeptical exactly right. as China, if not more so. In fact, he may be the China friend yeah. uh, among them. Our contributors will be staying with us. And you can check out what's coming up next week on Wall Street Week by heading to Bloomberg Market's official Twitter account. We're going to have a poll each week focused on what you'd like to hear from our contributors. That's next. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We welcome now Larry Summers. Coming to us from Newton, Massachusetts, Zanny Minton Beddoes and Glenn Hubbard are still with us here in New York. So, Larry, thanks so much for joining us. I know that you think that basically any of the Democrats would be better on economic policy than President Trump. But among the Democrats, is there much of a variation? Look, I think the Democrats are all much better than President Trump. They don't have the same truculence. They don't have the same willingness to give away. They don't have any willingness to give away money uh, to rich people. They don't have the same resisting of alliance. They all recognize that saving the environment is an economic issue, not just an aesthetic issue. And President Trump doesn't understand uh, any of that. In general, I prefer the Democrats who recognize that inequality and fairness are crucial issues, but not the only crucial issues and who also understand how important it is to grow our economy more rapidly. Because only with a growing economy and a more rapidly growing economy can we afford to provide early, early childhood education for all our kids. Only can we afford enough scientific research, make the necessary investments in renewables to lead the world with respect to climate change. Only with more rapid growth can we raise middle-class standards of living at a rapid rate? So I prefer the more moderate uh, Democrats, people like uh, like former Vice President uh, Biden, the candidates whose names begin with B, basically their last uh, <laughs> names, who recognize the importance of having a stronger economy in order to make it possible to do all the necessary public investment and to do all the necessary things to support uh, the middle class. And the approach, uh, frankly, taken by Senator Sanders and uh, Senator Warren, that acts like there's no constraint on how much the government can spend, that the government can add up its spending, that there's no limit to how high the taxes that can be placed on affluent people are that thinks the only issue is tearing down the people who are most uh, successful uh, in our country. I don't think that's nearly as productive uh, an approach. You know, there's an important philosophical question that people have to ask about economics. 
yes, no question, our highest priority is standing with the middle class. But do you believe that if we have more massively successful people in the United States, that will be good because it will be part of a process of strengthening our economy that will benefit uh, everybody, that it will create more exports, that it will create more jobs, that it will create more opportunities? Or do you believe that if we just don't have successful people, that's better? Everybody agrees yeah. on the Democratic side that success needs to be shared and shared right. much more than it has been in recent decades and certainly vastly more than it has been with the Trump tax cuts. But is the objective to really regard right. somebody who does enough stuff to make a billion dollars almost a criminal, right. as uh, Senator Sanders <laughs> suggests? I don't think those are the values of the American right. people. Right. I don't think those right. are values that will help our economy succeed. Okay, so let's turn to somebody who served in a Republican administration. What Larry just said, is that a Democratic point of view? Because pro-growth for the Democrats? Well, pro-growth should be everybody's point of view. It's not a Democratic or Republican phrase. Certainly heartened to hear the attacks on what I would call fairly extreme views from Senator Sanders and Senator Warren. I would give the president a little more credit in economic policy. While he has made some steps that I don't agree with, I think, by and large, the corporate tax plan was very good. His bent towards uh, lighter, smarter regulation, uh, also very good. To me, the real frustration in this campaign is that we're going to talk about very big things like socialism, yes, no, as opposed to really what works. How are we actually going to fix health care? How are we actually going to have an infrastructure plan? And how do we prepare people for the modern world? We didn't hear much about that in the State of the Union address, I must say. Let me take you on a little bit uh, there. There is no evidence of any kind that we have seen any substantial increase in investment because of cutting the corporate tax rate to 21 percent. But we've seen a huge gain to people at uh, the top end. I don't know what the light, smart regulation is. But I'm more worried that we'll get ourselves into financial trouble again sometime in the next several years than I have been uh, any time in a very uh, long time. So I'm disappointed to see you um, while adopting, I think, a, a valid uh, philosophy, endorse the specifics of much of what uh, the president has done. Yeah. I mean, just, cut so, corporate so, tax so, rates, I, maybe. Expensing, maybe. But it's been hundreds of billions of dollars more yeah, expensive than, than you thought. Right. I think well, Glenn has an yeah, opportunity just, to respond. Just, yeah, just one quick addendum, Larry. I think the early evidence from the corporate tax plan was that investment did go up relative to trend. What has happened is a very large increase in uncertainty, some of it, frankly, due to our own public policies. Uh, but the tax plan itself, I don't think, is the problem. So I've been enjoying watching this duel between between the uh, two esteemed uh, former members of two administrations. Uh, I my take. I, I, we can have a long discussion about the uh, merits or otherwise of Trump economic policy. I think I think there is there are some uh, good things in it, Larry. I think there has been some tax reform that was useful to have. I think some of the deregulation was probably sensible. I think broadly the size of the fiscal deficit. I'm sure Glenn, you would agree, is not where one would want a exactly. fiscal deficit right now, and the nature of much of the tax cut 
also left a lot to be desired. But for me, the striking thing about the Democrats, and we in our cover story this week have called them the repair faction and the radical faction. Mm. The radical faction, obviously, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, uh, the repair-oriented moderates um, are the others. I think it's not just the ones beginning with B, actually. I think there's probably somebody beginning with K who might, who might <laughs> want to be part of that, too. Um, but for me, the interesting thing is, even amongst them, how far the centre of gravity amongst what is now the moderates in the Democratic Party is to the left Very of much. where, you know, certainly President Clinton was and President Obama was on many areas. So the scale of the spending plans, the attitude to trade, which I think is really, really interesting. Trade scepticism is now entrenched um, in the Democratic Party and trade scepticism towards China is probably stronger, actually, there um, than even well, at least as strong as President Trump. There's not much yeah. daylight yeah. there. It would be, you know, more desire to work multilaterally. But the scepticism is absolutely there. Many thanks to Larry Summers from Newton, Massachusetts. We're going to be back with our contributors. And we should know Michael Bloomberg is also seeking the Democratic nomination for president. Bloomberg is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg News. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. And we're back with our contributors now, Zanny Minton Beddoes and Glenn Hubbard are still with us here in New York. So we're going to ask them what caught their eye. And I know, Glenn, you were particularly taken by the fact that the British government appears to be changing their position towards internal combustion engines. Yes, there was a, an announcement of an aspiration to phase out internal combustion engines for sale by 2035 instead of 2040. And in concert with all the stories recently about stranded assets and climate change, it just strikes one that the pace of this may move more quickly than people think. And it may be quicker in Europe than it, it is here. Definitely be quicker uh -huh. in Europe than it is here. I think one of the striking things, and every time I cross the Atlantic now, is how big the, the difference is between the focus in Europe on climate and here. And here it's changing, but in Europe it's really changing. This is absolutely front and centre on, on the European political agenda. Glenn, and one of the things I hear time and again is that may, may address the fiscal issues in Europe uh, through the green process, that in fact investment will be required and that will actually help the growth over there. Does that make sense? I think it does. I mean, a carbon tax can also be part of a fiscal reform for the United States too. So we know how to do this. The question is just getting the consensus behind it. But I don't think the discussion's absent in the U.S. Many prominent investors like BlackRock have really weighed in on this in a very serious way. 
certainly is now ESG is, is it, I think, becoming for real um, in boardrooms around the world. I think that's really interesting. How does that translate into sort of meaningful change beyond the financial community? And I think one place to look would be what happens through the financial sector regulation? Is that are the central banks? You know, Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, has been pushing this very hard. That may be somewhere I think we see real change. The UK is obviously going to be the host for the next COP meeting this year. That's going to be a very, very big priority. I think this is, you're right, this is an area where there's traction, but there's obviously a big difference when you've got a government that is a federal government that is really not paying any attention whatsoever. Exactly. That's the big difference. Yeah. If you look at Europe and the United States, we're talking about the government in Europe doing this. Private industry actually, if anything, doing it despite the government, in the face of the government. Can it really work in this country without the government getting behind it? No. I mean, in the long run, we're going to have to have some sort of price on carbon. And so, no, that's a public policy matter. Corporations can't solve it. But I do think the American business community is very heavily engaged as are American investors. I wouldn't count out the political class some. just yet. I, I think it's less I mean, there are, there are some are very, very heavily engaged, but I think not everybody on this side of the Atlantic. There are definitely some who think growth is what it's all about. Right. This economy is doing very, very well. It's dynamic. Those Europeans, they're not even growing and they're focused on the climate. I mean, I've heard that. So, so I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't get too complacent about what's going on here. There you have it. Many thanks to our contributors, Glenn Hubbard and Zanny Minton Beddoes. We welcome now Larry Summers, coming to us from Newton, Massachusetts. So, Larry, big news this week, obviously, is the spread of the coronavirus. A lot of talk about what the economic effects are. What do you make the economic effects out to be? David, no one knows, but I think the risks are very large. Experience uh, suggests that major pandemic events are events that take place somewhere between once every half century and once every century. The fact that this one has gone so far has to mean there's a substantial chance that it's the one for this half century or this century. And the events that take place that infrequently, the worst of them kill a number of millions, quite possibly as many as 10 million people. And they disrupt commerce and transportation and the ordinary doing of business, not for weeks, but for many months or even a period approaching uh, a year. So I'm not certainly confident uh, that this is going to be a historic uh, disaster, but I think there is a risk that we are still in the top of the second inning with respect to uh, this tragedy. Some time ago, I looked at, uh, in some detail, with collaborators, our research uh, paper suggested that every so often they were quite catastrophic uh, magnitude and that if you took the cumulative risk over a century from global epidemics and global pandemic, it was in the same broad range, perhaps less, but not less by anything like a factor of 10, than uh, global climate change. And unfortunately, the issue hasn't received nearly the same degree of attention that global climate change has rightly received. And I suspect that will get repaired uh, in the wake of the current tragedy. Many thanks to Larry Summers from Newton, Massachusetts. We're going to be back with our contributors. 
Head to Bloomberg.com for more exclusive thoughts from our weekly contributors, along with full episodes and the official Bloomberg Wall Street Week podcast. And coming up next, Dan Tarullo. He's former Federal Reserve Board of Governors member. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Over 200 years ago, Benjamin Franklin said that it was work that makes us happy. But now, for the first time in history, we run the risk of running out of those jobs that make us so happy. According to an Oxford economics study from last year, the world stands to lose millions of jobs to automation, with China potentially having the most to lose, as many as 12.5 million over the next decade, followed by 2 million lost in Europe and 1.5 million in the United States. It's the lower skilled workers that may take the biggest hit, at least initially, but none of us should be feeling too complacent. It turns out that those holding bachelor's degrees are particularly vulnerable, and some of the most sophisticated and highest paying jobs may go the way of the buggy whip maker. So the next time you complain about having to roll up your sleeves, you might want to take a look over your shoulder to see if there's some contraption that doesn't need sleeves waiting to take your place. To talk about what technology may mean for jobs, we welcome now Daniel Tarullo of Harvard. Dan was the member of the Board of Governors responsible for regulating financial institutions. And our contributors, Zanny Minton, Beddows, and Glenn Hubbard are still with us. So, Dan, I know you've taken a real hard look, particularly at artificial intelligence, what it means for jobs in the United States, for the workplace. What have you concluded? Well, I haven't, I'm not sure I've concluded much, David, other than to believe that it's an issue that has been underappreciated and underanalyzed in public policy terms. And I think there are three sorts of considerations here. First is the potential sheer magnitude of the impact may well be millions, and I've seen estimates that are not alarmist estimates that go well above a couple of million. Secondly, that those losses will not just be at the lower end of the wage scale, but could go all the way up to what we now think of as professional jobs, contributing to a further hollowing out of the middle in the American and other mature economies. Second consideration is that even if you take a fairly optimistic view of where this all may end up, that is, that technology will end up creating as many jobs as it eliminates, as has been the case in the past, the transition may be an extremely difficult one. You know, we think transition temporary, therefore it's kind of okay. But if a transition is long enough and if it's dramatic enough, there can be permanent scars to the people who lose their jobs, but I think also to the, to the economy as a whole. You know, Bill Gates is no technophobe. He's the furthest thing from it, but he's expressed concern about the pace of the change. And the third consideration, I think, is the intersection of the economics and the politics. You know, since, uh, if you go back to the enclosure movement and the early industrial revolution in Britain, when there is substantial displacement that has a social as well as an economic effect, there is a high correlation with political mm. uh, consequences, including um, more polarization, more disaffection, uh, more movement away from the center towards more dramatic alternatives. And I think 
to some degree, we saw, we've seen some of that in this country. I mean, the, we lost almost 20% of manufacturing jobs in the United States in the decade before the financial crisis. I'm from Flint. Tell me about exactly. it. Exactly. And, and I think, uh, you, we don't know for a fact, obviously, but I think there's a pretty good chance that those losses at the pace, the pace of the losses, the sense of, of, um, of being displaced has contributed to the polarization and the disaffection that we that we see today. Glenn, you've done some work in this area. I, I have, and, and let me agree with Dan. I do think this is a huge problem, and our political class isn't that aware. But let's start with some good news, too. The artificial intelligence movement will enable people to be far better at many of their jobs. It complements the skills of many workers at the top uh, and the bottom, hopefully not replacing economics professors uh, in, the, <laughs> in the middle of that. But we're not really prepared. You know, uh, Dan mentioned Bill Gates. Bill Gates' idea was taxing robots. We don't need to build walls against the future. What we need to do is build bridges to it. And so we need to help people get ready. But our public policies are stuck in a labor market set of policies from the 1930s. They're not ready for today. And there I really agree with Dan. So I, oh, this is going to be a very dull conversation because I, we're all going to agree, but, <laughs> but two perspectives on this. One is I'm struck actually in the last few years about how more, much more slowly this is happening than people were anticipating. The, the study you cited at the beginning of this segment had a kind of an earlier version, which I think right. came out in 2013, an Oxford study that caused a huge stir that I think said 47% mm -hmm. of jobs were vulnerable to being automated within the next couple of decades, cited thousands of times. And that, and that really started the robots are about to take all of our jobs meme. If you actually look what's happened to labor markets in the last few years, we have unemployment at record lows across the rich world. We have employment at record highs in many places. And this is not all, you know, gig jobs. It's not all terrible jobs. It's actually sustainable, real jobs. And so I think it's happening much more slowly. And I'm sort of comforted that, uh, as Glenn said, in the end, history, every time we've had a technological innovation, has created jobs as well as destroying them. In fact, more of the creation than of the destruction. But where you're completely right is that the transition for particular people who don't have the right skills for the new kinds of jobs... Are, are traumatic, and we've definitely seen that over the last 20 years in manufacturing in the U.S. and across the advanced world. And so for me, the, the question is, what do we do about it? And the lesson historically is that the U.S. did it so much better 100 years ago in the last big industrial revolution because you had a revolution in education at the same time. You had the creation of universal secondary education in a sense provided people with the skills they needed when they came off the land to work in factories. And we haven't had that revolution in education and training now, and we need it. Right. Well, and Dan, it strikes me, employment's very, very high, unemployment's very, very low, but wages have not increased the way we would have thought given that employment situation. How much of that is being suppressed, actually, by technology? Uh, it's, surely technology is playing a role. It's, it, uh, surely globalization has played a role as well. Um, I think where I probably disagree some with both Glenn and Zanny is, is more predictive than factual, but I'm skeptical about the capacity of public policy to manage a truly substantial displacement, even over a trans transitional period. I, I don't think we did a very good job at all with trade displacement. And trade displacement itself could be um, uh, smallish compared to what happens in technology. Zanny makes an important point. The tendency towards alarmism, towards getting your tweet and all, I think is probably exaggerated. Certainly the um, 
point at which we'll have a kind of critical mass of job losses and maybe even the eventual magnitude of it. But when you think when it's not just individuals, but whole groups of people, whether it's geographic communities or right. um, classes of people, I don't I don't think that a system that's set up more or less for individual assistance is actually going to be but, particularly but, but efficacious. To me, at least that raises two questions. What should we do about it and how do you pay for it? What you should do about it. I mean, this this issue that where David and I started speaking about this issue was exactly around the campaign with our saying, yeah. you know, what's not being talked about. And I, uh, Andrew Yang has talked about it some, that the leading candidates have not. I suspect part of the reason is they don't have a great solution. You know, to the degree that it intersects with trade, and it will intersect with trade, particularly with trade and services, I think that one political response is going to be further constraint on on mm. globalization. But I don't think, you know, how do you, how do you deal with a progressive development of AI that is not closing down factories, that's unlikely to be the way it, it plays out. Instead, it will be within ongoing businesses, you'll have a displacement. Well, I, I think that there are things that we could be doing. Uh, Austin Goolsby and Penny Pritzker and I suggested a block grant <clears throat> for community colleges, which are the workhorses for these training programs. And something I used to be quite skeptical of, but I'm a little bit less so today, place-based aid, actually going into communities uh, for income relief, for right. shoring up those communities' capacity to cope with change. If we don't do this, I worry, as Dan does, that we're going to wreck the social fabric that underlies change and the golden goose of our economic system. Well, I think, I think it, it is hard to overstate how dysfunctional the U.S. political environment is right now and thus how unlikely the U.S. is to be a place where this is catalyzed. I agree with you in terms of one of the areas where we have had... where I also have changed my view is the, is the whole question of left-behind areas and place-based aid. Because it used to be a view that you'd think, well, people would move to where the dynamic new jobs were. And I think we underestimated the kind of corrosive impact of a really large-scale hit to particular geographic areas. Interestingly, that's actually an area where the UK is now doing a huge, great experiment. Boris Johnson's levelling up agenda, which is the sort of big post-Brexit agenda for the UK, is very much about helping the region. So, you know, as in 1979, maybe, you know, Britain will forge some new social contract and we can, you know, export it back to you. But the, the bit that I think is less likely, I don't think it's going to be... Well, there's already protectionism in the US, but the area that worries me where I think you will simply see a slowing of the technological change. So, for example, one of the, uh, the examples people always use is truck drivers. Yes. Right now, you can't get enough truck drivers in this country, but it is a, an industry where those people who think robots will take our jobs say, well, within, you know, a decade, there'll be no more jobs for truck drivers. If that were really to be the case, I think there would be huge political pressure simply to stop driverless trucks, and we would just be preventing progress that way. But that's, that's my that question. Really is, that is the center, though, I think. It's, that's the issue on that, uh, the, where the politics may be fought out in the not-too-distant future. That is, is there going to be an effort to intervene directly to at least slow down the source and pace of the change? Or is there going to be more or less complete reliance on adjustment mechanisms? And that's why I was making the point earlier that adjustment mechanisms, at least in the United States, have proven woefully inadequate have we to ever deal done with trade have issues. We ever done it well? Have we ever done it well? No. Uh, not, not in a well-organized fashion, no. And, and what we've done is to put enormous pressure on the few sets of programs that exist. Disability insurance was not designed 
to deal with 55-year-old people who have lost a job and are not totally disabled. But that's the only thing that exists, which is why you have an entire industry of people who are on late-night TV saying they can get you a full disability claim. Okay, many thanks to Dan Tarullo. Many thanks to our contributors, Glenn Hubbard and Zanny Minton-Beddows. This has been another edition of Wall Street Week. See you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.